You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by... Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting, let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications until I found WGU. There I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at WGU.edu. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is former Indiana Speaker of the House, Brian Bosma. We're going to talk to him about his distinguished career, his amazing philanthropy work, and we are joined by Wish TV State House and political reporter emeritus Jim Shella. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Robert. Emeritus? I, I think that means I don't work there. Right <laughs> <laughs> but it's remembered fondly. Yes, I am. Yeah, too. I'm getting the pension checks. Excellent. <laughs> There's nothing bad about that. <laughs> Let me tell you. Um, it, well. Not only were you Speaker of the House, you were the longest-serving Speaker of the House in Indiana, correct? Yeah, 12 years. Um, and when people would point that out in an introduction or something, I'd always say, well, that's because for everybody else, after six years, they either hung them or ran them out of town. So, yeah, 12 years. Well, it's a tough job. It is a tough job, yeah. And um, at the same time, the, the, the common phrase at the State House is that as long as the General Assembly is in session, the Speaker of the House is the most powerful person in Indiana. Would you agree with that? Well, I guess I'd quibble with that statement a little, uh, but because the Speaker cannot always make something happen, the Speaker can always stop something from happening. So uh, to a degree, I would say that's at least in part the case. The speaker can stop something from happening, but not like he used to be able to. When, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> when, when I first came to Indiana, J. Roberts Daly was the speaker, and um, it was up to him whether bills got called down, whether they got assigned to committee. I mean, he he was famous for taking bills he didn't like and throwing them in his safe, and they'd never come out. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, the pocket veto, they called it, uh, for J. Bob's. Well, and, and all prior speakers, and all yes, but but I, I think it was because of the way he exercised power uh, that things were changed in in large part. That and the fifty fifty when when we had a fifty exactly. fifty house uh, starting in nineteen eighty eight, uh, massive rule changes were made. Do you wish you had the power that previous speakers had? You know, I don't think it's uh, no. I honestly don't because I don't think it should be one person's decision on a lot of these issues. Of course, leaders have to lead. The speaker has to lead. The president pro tem of the Senate has to lead. 
but uh, they can't be dictators and they shouldn't be dictators. So I think the, the changes that have happened, you know, publication of a calendar, uh, notice on amendments, there used to be, you know, amendment by ambush. Uh, and I, I think these are all positive for, uh, for democracy here in the state. Well, and as long as you're talking about uh, uh, transparency, uh, something that, that came about during your service as speaker was uh, Internet coverage uh, of the General Assembly, live, live cameras uh, on the floor of the House. And while, you know, guys like me working with t- TV photographers were always in the balcony, we didn't, you know, we'd, we would create a two-minute story at the end of the day. Right. Um, suddenly everything was live. And uh, I think that posed a problem for you. You you felt like you needed to change some of the behavior there as a result. Correct? Yeah, actually, I wasn't just there for it. I orchestrated it both in 2005, my first speakership to have live coverage uh, of the floor. And then when I came back in 2010, uh, returning speaker, putting it in every committee, uh, committee room so the public could if they desired to, uh, to observe the process. And yes, some things had to change. Uh, it, there was a lot of rubber band shooting, uh, paper clipping on people's clothes uh, pins on the back of their uh, pants. Uh, <laughs> it, it just, yeah, it, there were a lot of kids there, it seemed like. Uh, but it had some consequences also. A little bit I, of internet shopping. To y- probably. Um, so I was told by Bob Garten, who was when I became speaker and said I was going to do this, uh, open up our proceedings. He said, don't do it. There'll be unforeseen consequences. You can't even think about what they are. You don't want people to be watching this. They have to come here to do it. And I did it anyway. And there, were, there was an unforeseen consequence. Uh, after the 2005 session, I became the defendant in an ACLU suit over the 196-year practice of opening sessions with prayer. Um, And somebody sat and watched those videos and counted the number of times that the word Jesus, the name Jesus Christ was used and filed a lawsuit over it. So uh, fortunately, we were able to to, uh, survive that. We still open with prayer here. Well, essentially, the, the lawsuit was successful. What what happened was you had to hold the prayer before you gaveled in, correct? Yeah, give a, give a lawyer a long list of things, uh, Judge Hamilton, uh, that he says you can't do, and the lawyer will figure out how to get it done without doing those things. So we took uh, the opening prayer off of the official agenda uh, in, in the rule book. We gaveled in right after that. So nothing really changed other than when the, ga- other than when the gavel hit. And uh, Judge Hamilton is not contacting me since. <laughs> I got to tell you a, a, a quick story. <clears throat> at about that time, I was at a, at a dinner party. I, ho- ho- as you know, hosted Indiana Week in Review. And right. we, we used to, uh, at charity auctions, give people the opportunity to host the Week in Review panel at a dinner party. And, and that was happening. Well, hold it. People would bid on having the panel and catering and, and, and catering to them. Boy, what a racket. <laughs> and, and, uh, um, it was the ACLU who, who brought the lawsuit. Um, and, uh, who was the head of the ACLU at that point? Um, I can't think of his name. Was it Fran Quigley? Yes, it was Fran Quigley. And he was at this dinner party and we had about 30 people around the table. And, uh, as we were all about to sit down and eat, I, I got everybody's attention and said, I think that before we begin, uh, we should say grace. And I think Fran should lead. <laughs> Such a jackass! <laughs> hey, I've got to tell you one other. Gonna, well, I got to tell one other. Fran, Fran absolutely clutched. He could not make a sound, and someone someone else at the dinner agreed to step up and and finished uh, their very brief remarks by saying, "In the name of your favorite deity." Amen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'll tell you one other thing. You asked me, uh, Jim, in I, I can't even tell you what year it was. Uh, maybe it was after my second speakership. You said something about, I I, I said something about our achievements, this and this and this, and the legacy of opening the chambers up. And you took the microphone from your mouth, kind of turned sideways so I could still hear it. It's a little early to be talking legacy, isn't it? (laughs) That sounds just like me. (laughs) 
Um, let's talk about you a little bit because, okay. because, you know, while you were speaker for 12 years, you were in the general assembly for 34, 34 years, yep. which is interesting to me because I was at wish TV covering the general assembly for 34 years. They, they don't match up uh, identically, but how right. old were you when you first got elected? So I was 28 when I was first elected, but I grew up in a home that placed a very high premium on public service. My dad was a World War II vet, combat veteran in European theater, came back, ran for mayor of Beech Grove, didn't make it, uh, then ran for the General Assembly in 62 and served until his passing in uh, 1983 with the exception of the Goldwater vacation that everyone took in uh, 1964. In the state Senate. In the, he was in the House for six years and then the, or four years, I guess, and then the Senate for the remainder of his career. as a kid. Yeah. Charlie Bob? Well, he, he ran for Congress against Andy Jacobs in uh, 1980, I think, 78 or 80. And uh, yeah, he was on TV. We still have some of those buttons hanging around. I believe it. You're a good man, Charlie Bosma. <laughs> That's right. So what, did you have a service in the legislature in mind as a young man? Yeah, I, I knew I wanted to serve. I mean, we were expected to serve in some fashion. All four grandparents were immigrants. Uh, it was just piped into us all the time that we had received so much from this country and we needed to give back. And uh, whether it was teaching or elective office or, you know, public safety, whatever it was. So um, and when law became pretty clear to me as a as a career path, um, I started getting involved personally in politics and uh, and in 86 decided to was re- actually recruited by the Marion County Party to uh, to run on the east side um, and and did so and was actually filled a vacancy in May of 86 and served through 34 years after that through July 1. I'm guessing that was not in the plan to serve 34 years. It was not. In fact, I couldn't understand how my dad could serve for 21 years, how anyone could stay there that long. Uh, I got kicked into leadership after the first eight years. I was the floor leader. Um, and then the Republican leader beginning in 20 and then a speaker and of course six times. But, um, you know, and I retired for, for two reasons. One, a couple of my key, uh, staff persons said, Hey boss, you're not having fun anymore. And I said, well, you're right. I'm not, uh, this is a lot of work. And I had a checklist of 72 items that I thought when I was minority leader, that uh, I ran on in the 2004 campaign that this is what we wanted to accomplish. And we knocked all those off, almost all of them. The one that uh, I never felt we got entirely was to make uh, Indiana the Silicon Valley of the Midwest. Uh, But about two years ago, when the battery uh, manufacturer was moving, Duracell or whoever it is, moving into the Franklin or the South area here, I was listening to the radio on the way downtown to the state house. And the CEO said, well, we've come here uh, to Indiana because we think Indiana is the Silicon Valley of the Midwest. So I went, okay, check mark. Um, <laughs> is this where I should disclose that I did the PR for Speaker Bosma's retirement? Suppose That's probably I, a good idea. I suppose I should. So that when I say <laughs> I how great should. it was, it's a beautiful <laughs> announcement, wonderfully done. It was wonderfully done. <laughs> you know, and it's... As you know, Jim, after 34 years in a career, even though I had a dual career, I was here working at Kroger Gardens and Regas around the clock, too. Um, there's some trepidation about that. My, my, my most significant trepidation was not to lose the gains that we had made as a state. And uh, I had one person that I was kind of training for the job that, you know, ended up resigning and then uh, then had the chance to work with Todd Houston when Doc Brown had uh, his motorcycle accident uh, as a Ways and Means chairman and realized Todd was just the right guy for the job. And so we had two years to work together to kind of have a smooth transition. And, and of course, the leader, the speaker or the minority leaders also lead the campaigns. So I wanted to time it in such a way that Todd would have the the authority of the speakership behind him for the uh, 2018 campaigns. So I stepped down right at the end of the session in 20, I guess it's 2019, yeah. 2019. Yeah. Did he, did speakers always lead the campaigns? I, at the very least, I would say, I think you took that to another level. Yeah. Uh, at, at least another level because we were getting our lunch handed to us. Uh, and we put together a you professional staff. You were winning staff. more votes statewide than the Democrats, but exactly. you were you were coming up with 47, 46, 48 
seats in the house. Our good friend, Mike Gentry walked me through right. that when I was working at state party. I'm like, why do we keep losing? And he says, come to my office and I'll explain right. it to you. So yeah, we took it to an entirely new level and, and, uh, the current group is keeping it that way. So we're pretty enthused about that. But yeah, so it was time, uh, time to take a breath and let somebody else make their checklist of things to make Indiana a great place to, to live. So a- as the Republican leader, you were uh, opposite uh, a couple of different Democratic leaders. Um, I guess John Gregg for a period of time. Right. Yeah. And uh, Pat Bauer for a period of time. Seems to me that... Mike Phillips also. Y- yeah. Yeah. Um, you and Greg had a pretty good relationship. Well, we were law school friends and classmates. Came, both came into the legislature in 86. Both served on Ways and Means that first year. Uh, we just had a lot in common, and we still do today. We see each other every once in a while. We text and call just to check in with each other. Uh, and we solved some problems. I mean, we're both believers, and there, there were some tense times, particularly around the 2010 redistricting, when there was a complete loggerhead. And John just came in my office and said, hey, let's pray about this, and let's try to find a solution. And and we did. So there's there's a lot of behind this. People see the – I used to say – it's a little different now. I used to say it was like – old-time championship wrestling, like when we were kids, not the WWE stuff, but Dick the Bruiser. The Bruiser and, and Ernie the Big Cat Yeah, lad. all that. Well, People would go in the ring, beat the heck out of each other, and then you'd see them walk into the locker room together, you know, and, and giving each other a little punch and grabbing a beer. And that's kind of what it was like, uh, the two 50-50 There's a satirist who once said that state legislatures are like the World Wrestling Federation. For the most part, it's a bunch of overweight white guys pretending to hurt one another. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty good, pretty good uh, saying there. But uh, it changed, especially in the second 50-50 split. Things yeah. became much more, oh, just difficult. And, and uh, the second one was 96? Uh, 94 was the Republican tide. Was it 96 or 98 that it... I, I think it was 96. Yeah. I'm going to have to look to be sure. What made that different? Well, people tended not to... So when I socialized after session, I would go out with... There was a group of Democrats that I would go out with. Mark Carmichael, uh, John Gregg, uh, Mike Dvorak. We, we all came in at the same time. We were all pretty good friends. We'd go out and have dinner together. Uh, that second one, everyone kind of stayed on their own side. Republicans hung with Republicans, Democrats hung with Democrats. There was just more animosity at the top levels. The campaigns had gotten nastier and, uh, and, and that just kind of changed. Now it didn't change for some of us that had been around for a while and had maintained friendships, but for the new, the new folks that came in, I always encouraged them to take time, meet people on the other side of the aisle. Don't just stick with your Republican or Democrat friends. Uh, make friends here. Make friends on the committees. You will work so much better if you have relationships. That's what Mayhern, Louis Mayhern came on the podcast and was told, find someone on the other side of the aisle you can work with. And he yep. chose John Mutz. And they're great yep. friends to this day. Well, also the Indianapolis Press Club, I think, fostered a lot of camaraderie. That's true. And when it went away, there wasn't a gathering place. Um, I I think that that hurt a lot of uh, what went on in the General Assembly. I think that's fair, Jim. Uh, Yeah, the Press Club was just a a hangout. You could go over there and have lunch or dinner, have a cocktail or beer. Uh, And then when it left entirely it it moved and it was harder to get to but when it left entirely there just wasn't that easy place to go yeah so you got along with john Gregg, but but pat bauer was kind of a different circumstance um (laughs) my mother told me if you don't have something nice to say about someone maybe how many times i sat next to bauer at mass at st john's and then went on the radio and trashed him i was like well (laughs) but well you said you you don't need to spell things out. The 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 biggest, uh, most memorable dispute in the General Assembly, uh, I've got to believe for most people in the last generation, was the battle over right-to-work yep. legislation. Yep. You were the House Speaker. Yep. Pat Bauer was the minority leader, and he led a walkout of Democrats. They, they packed up and went to Illinois. Longest walkout by any legislative body in our nation's history, still today, 35 days. And uh, ironically, I got sent today, I printed it off, welcome to Indiana, a right to work state. And it was just in the Wall Street Journal yesterday that they 
a Ball State professor and somebody from the Mackinac Institute in Michigan using uh, statistics that they have, you know, fixed up for all other uh, variables. They say there's 27% more manufacturing and industrial employment in Indiana today than there would be if we did not have right to work. So when you think about that with Pat Bauer, just to pin to what Jim was saying. I mean, Pat Bauer is no shrinking violet. Right. I mean, so he's a very smart, very tough politico. So when you have to be very tough in relation to another very tough politico, are you kind of like, well, this is the game. Like, this is what you would do to me if the roles are reversed. So I don't feel bad about it. No, I'm, I'm stubborn. Uh, you could ask my wife, you could ask my parents when they were around. I'm Dutch. Uh, and uh, just, there's that kid, the, the um, boy, the Dutch boy who put his finger in the dike. That isn't just Dutch. That's from a place called Friesland, which is where my family is from. Mm-hmm. And they are stubborn, stubborn people. And there's no way that in a war of wills, I was going to lose. And my team knew this. Um, now, I also it also helped when I figured out that their only escape plan was to get Bosma to blow, right? They wanted me to blow up, do something crazy. Once I figured that out, uh, then I was going to win the bet that I won at Christmas when I figured out my kids had, and wife had been placing bets on when dad was going to blow on putting lights up. Right. These lights don't work. You know, throw them in the trash. Once I figured out that there was an actual bet on this, I was the calmest light guy in the world. Is that when you bought the uh, uh, keep calm and carry on mug? That actually. Yep. Keep calm and carry on mug, iPhone, iPad. (laughs) Uh, I had a giant poster of it uh, in in the office. So, Jim, were you waiting for Speaker Bosma to blow? Well, I was there every day waiting for whatever took place. I can tell you, I don't, I don't, you know, I've seen some, I've seen some explosions uh, in the General Assembly. I don't think uh, Speaker Bosma was the source of of any of the more memorable. Uh, so, not necessarily, no. So, so part this, of the that I, go ahead. Go oh, ahead well, I was going to say this. Charlie Charlie Brown was interviewed, maybe by you, Jim, out in Illinois. And he said something to the extent of the speaker is a six foot four, 240 pound windbag. And I'm sitting watching the news with Cheryl. That do you, was this you? No, it okay. wasn't. All right. It might so, have been, might have been Wish well, TV. Norman, right. Cox, Norman Cox outworked Jim. I know. <laughs> I'm sure he, he, went he there. was the dean of the State House Press Corps, Norman. <laughs> so anyway, we're sitting on the couch and Cheryl looks at me and, and you know, I'm expressionless. She goes, Are you okay? And I said, I am six foot five. Um, so I came, I came to the state house the next day, and the press corps asked me about it. I said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm miffed. Oh, right, right, yeah, I'm six foot five. And uh, then I kind of went like this. And every once in a while, you'll see this picture of me with with my uh, Macaulay Calkin hands. For, for but for Bauer, the question I was going to ask is, and something that you experienced, you are, as Jim stated if not the most powerful person in the state when sessions going on, but you're certainly in the photo, obviously. And then you're the minority leader. I mean, that's a huge difference. So do you think that some of of Bowers representative Bowers angst was just the fact that he was used to running the show, getting a lot of TV because he was making fun of Daniels, calling him a rookie. Now all of a sudden you're basically imposing your will on him and his caucus. I don't profess to have any opinion as to what's going on in Pat's head today or years ago. Um, he was speaker for four years, which isn't a very long tenure, uh, and couldn't seem to shake that. Uh, for a Democrat in Indiana, it's not a bad tenure. Well, that's not terrible. <laughs> there, there are several six, six-year tenure folks. But anyway, uh, I will tell you that Pat, <laughs> during that walkout, he kept sending missives. You know, we have these demands. Take all this off. And I would just say, no, when you come back, the calendar will be exactly the same it was as it was when you left. Now, ultimately, we removed right to work that year, but we got school choice, charter school expansion, and a number of other things. And I knew after 35-day walkout, they could not possibly walk out in 2012. Um, at one point, Pat, uh, Pat sent an emissary, and I was just reading about the Battle of Bastogne, and um, he basically said, you know, surrender. 
or we're not coming back. And I responded on a piece of paper, nuts. And which was the He's a history famous, buff. He sure like yeah. it. Well, he called me. He did not know it. He did not know he the story. He didn't know General McAuliffe's uh, right. Uh, but he... It was Battle of the Bulge, right? No. Yeah, but Bastogne Spell, it was, was part of the Bastogne was part of the Battle of the Bulge, yeah. December sixteenth, forty four is when yeah. it started. But McAuliffe is the one who sent the nuts. Yeah, just back. nuts. And then, but so on the jeep ride out, the German officer asked the driver, "Was is das nuts?" And the jeep driver gave him what he thought the translation was, and uh, Pat. Somebody told that to Pat, and Pat called me and said, "You said to me, blank, blank." No, I didn't, Pat. I said nuts. You said to me. So that's that's one of my favorites from from Pat. Is is the right to Jim? Is the right to work? Is that the favorite fight that you've ever covered at the General Assembly? It seems that the speaker relished it a um, bit. If I may say, it was exciting. Well, it was maybe the most memorable, but I, I don't know. Um, you know, uh, the battle over same-sex marriage is is That's right thing. up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, to, right to work had um, larger crowds for the rallies, but not as many rallies as same-sex marriage. Um, you know, the the Rifra mm-hmm. uh, controversy. Right. Um, it. Uh, Again, let me let me just throw in a quick anecdote. Uh, the Democrats at one point brought in the actor Danny Glover yep. to uh, who, uh, speak who was, to at that time was one of my favorites. Right up to then, <laughs> uh, and and he obviously you know is involved in in union activities in Hollywood and 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 was a, a very energetic speaker. He was very wound up, and I went up to ask him a question after he'd he'd finished with the crowd, and and um, he was he was he was so vociferous in his answer that at one point a a piece of spittle came out of his mouth and landed on my lower lip and he he leaned over and wiped it off. (laughs) (laughs) So, so one of the things that we did during this 35 day walkout with, you know, union guys bust in or paid or whatever, uh, to be at the state house. And there were thousands of them. One, one estimate for one day was 14,000. Um, I opened the chambers up and said, come on in and sit down and we'll talk about this. And uh, the whole place fills up with these union guys. And I'm explaining, you know, you will not, you can still belong to a union. You don't have to belong to a union. You don't have to pay dues. You can choose to pay dues. Because they were telling these guys that you're not going to get a pension. They're taking your pension away, all these things. And you could see people kind of looking at each other like, hold it, this is not what we're hearing. And then all of a sudden, this one dude gets up and says, we just got a call. So-and-so says we can't be in here any longer. So they were watching this and seeing that we were making some inroads, and one of the union bosses calls and says, get everybody out of there before people uh, you know, figure out what's going on here. Yeah. Did, did you uh, at any point during that right to life battle have any concern that, that uh, it, uh, it, it, you wouldn't be successful? Or did you have any concerns about security, safety? had security concerns that you'll note that that is about when the speaker started receiving uh, constant police escort uh, during set session days. It's because there were some death threats, uh, bona fide death threats. And, uh, you know, state police came out to our home. Uh, we had right to work uh, protesters at our house also dropped off. Funny thing about that, I said, oh, do you fear for your family? I said, pity the poor union guy that gets in front of my daughter's Jeep. And then I realized, my daughter doesn't want to have anything to do with this. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so I begged everybody not to write that one. Uh, but uh, yeah, there, there were some concerns, but I didn't have concern that we weren't going to make it happen. I knew I had just enough votes. And when we were going to do it, we would do it successfully. I did have some concern about the Senate, in all honesty. Uh, that's That's one of the concerns for both chamber leaders, you can go to a lot of effort to get something through your chamber, spend a lot of personal capital or political capital or whatever. And then if the guy on the other side uh, doesn't like the idea, that's all for naught. Fortunately, I had David Long, almost my entire uh, speakership there, and uh, he and I got along very well and saw eye to eye on so many things. And honestly, we both take great pride in the economic shape that Indiana is in today uh, for 
our efforts, uh, but but not just ours, of course. I worked with seven governors during uh, during my tenure. Mitch being the most exciting um, and and excitable, um, and we you know we made a lot of positive changes uh, for the state. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is former Indiana Speaker of the House, Brian Bosma. We are joined by our good friend and frequent co-host, Jim Shella. But Mitch Daniels loomed very large. Absolutely. How much different, and I'm going to say of a politician, because I can't think of another way to say it, or maybe a leader, was Mitch compared to who you were used to working with? Well, of course, Mitch came straight from, well, he didn't come straight from corporate, but he had been in corporate, right? And then D.C., he just had big ideas. It wasn't, he was not a, um, wasn't just going to let things administer, you know, we're just going to administer this well. He wanted revolution and we needed it. Our state needed it. We were lagging the rest of the nation in so many ways. Um, and you had very willing and, and capable partners with, uh, with myself and then Bob Garten, uh, and then ultimately David Long after that next election. So, yeah, we made a lot of changes together, and he was a visionary. I, I got a couple of funny Mitch stories. He and Luke Kenley were getting into a big argument about uh, what what should happen with a surplus, and Luke wanted to put it one place, Mitch wanted to put it another, and there were leaders, you know, half a dozen, eight leaders, legislative leaders in there. Mitch gets up and s- starts stomping out, and I, like, stop him at the door of the of his office and said, don't, don't do this. Don't do this. Let's just get this settled right here. It'll be fine. It's an act. What? It's an act. He was saying it's an act, trying to say it's an act under his breath. (laughs) And and it sounded like, uh, you know, Charlie McCarthy saying it. It's an act. (laughs) Um, But I mean, he was used to getting his way too. as budget director. You know, he didn't, he didn't take a poll. President Bush. Right. Yeah. He, he just did what he thought, uh, he needed to be done, and there was nobody else to to appease. Uh, it's different when you're a governor uh, with a, with powerful legislative bodies. Uh, governor is is a weak governorship. Constitutionally, we override a veto with just a majority of votes, the same it takes to pass a bill. So, uh, so you've got to have legislative leaders that are that are helpful and and see eye to eye. Is is the 2004 election your favorite that night? No, uh, the 2010 election is my favorite that night. We got beat in 2006. We knew we were going to get beat because we did two things. I we did state party doing yep. comms. Yes, that was a da- bad year. Daylight savings time had to be done. Mm-hmm. We knew it was going to be unpopular. I had a poll that showed we weren't come back in the majority with it. Mm-hmm. Second one uh, was the toll road deal, the lease of the toll road, which which was the first of the least of five major uh, investments that we made now in the crossroads in America with the, my last one being the largest, uh, which we're still building on today. Um, we knew we were going to lose seats up there as well. And uh, so, so we knew, but we sat around a table like this and I had all the, all the uh, toll road legislators in my office. Some of them are crying, not Jackie Walorski, some of the guys um, and, and said, well, we can't do this. Because we got to do it. I mean, just take all the politics off the table. What's the right thing to do here? Well, everybody agreed. Both of these things are the right thing to do. I said, so my constant mantra as leader was just do what's right and let the politics shake out for itself. So, so we took it on the chin minority status in six and eight uh, in the session each following those two years. Um, and, but, you know, normally if somebody loses election, they chuck the leader and go for somebody else. My team stuck with me and knew why we did what we did. And 2010, coming back with 60 members uh, from 48, that that was a tasty night. 
Um, and, and the only reason I mentioned four, obviously, is because in 10, you already had the governorship. In other words, Republicans right. controlled the governorship. In 2004, it flipped for the first time in 16 years. What did you think of that? Like, oh my, how much different is, I mean, you had served under or obviously. Right. Uh, but how were you just excited at the possibility of now we run everything and we get to really show this state what happens when Republicans are in charge. Yeah. I, there, there was certainly a sense of excitement about that. You were, I would say if you would ask most people that were involved, then they would say 2004, you were asking me, I, I took it. You were asking me. Yes. And so that was the sweetest one for me was coming back after being the minority leader. But yeah, that, that was a wonderful night and we knew, I mean, it was exciting. We knew that we were going to have the chance to make big changes. Mitch had a list. We had a list. Bob Garten did not have a list. Uh, Bob was old school and wanted to react, not to proact. In fact, um, I remember being up in Muncie, which I just was here not long ago, and I saw the guy that was our candidate up there. And in the local Muncie paper, uh, the headline was, House Republicans only team with a plan. We had put out an agenda Mm -hmm. as to what we would do. And now everybody does that. But nobody had done that previously, uh, at least locally here. So... um, so, yeah, it was very exciting, and it turned out to be two really good years for our state. So when 2014 happened, the second wipeout, it's interesting how, I mean, you can you could say it's Barack Obama's personal popularity, but then when he's not on the ballot, the Democrats lost, much like Eisenhower, who ran, who won easily twice, but then lost the other three elections, the two midterms and his successor. Barack Obama did the same thing. Was 14 just icing on the cake, or at a certain point you're like, what am I going to do with all these people? Yes, about 56 people in, out of 100 is the sweet spot. Uh, you get uh, 70 or 72, I think now is what Speaker Houston has. There's just It's trouble to keep everybody together. I, I've been there for 45, 50 twice, 52, 54, 60, 68, and 70. So at 52... That's not enough because every person, if one person doesn't vote your way, like on the toll road, Dave Wilkins, Mm -hmm. everybody's the 51st vote. We wouldn't have this deal but for Steve Heim or... Or Troy Woodruff getting blamed for daylight saving time. Exactly. Um, 60s, manageable. 70, they're factions. And it's difficult to keep... It's not just factions. Everybody has their own little pet thing. And if you've, if you've got a great agenda and you've got 56 people, then you've got to keep people focused mm-hmm. on the agenda. So a supermajority is a problem for a speaker. I was going to ask you, but, which would you rather cover, Jim? And well, I don't mean to interrupt, but did you enjoy well, it no, when it's 52-48? Or? Yes. And, and the point I, I, I'm about to make is that I don't think a supermajority is good for democracy. Uh, from this simple point of view, when, when you're – you're covering it and trying to tell the public what's going on. All of the debate takes place in caucus. Everybody gets their emotion out. Everybody gets their arguments out in caucus. And then they come out on the floor and there's nothing to play off. The, 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 you know, the discussion's already been had. And, and so the public doesn't learn what the, what the, the pros and cons are. It's, it's all done in private. Right. Well, that's, that's a fair statement. When, when we had a when I was the speaker of a supermajority of uh, four years or six, um, I just absolutely stated to our caucus: now you have to be fairer than you were in uh, in a just a bare majority. You have to be more communicative. You have to give the other side more opportunity because uh, you know it's for starters it's going to look bad if you don't, but it's the right thing to do. And then. Personally, as a leader, I stopped. People say, oh, we got a supermajority. Why can't we do this crazy thing or this crazy thing? I stopped them. Uh, and not just me, but our team stopped them and our committee chairs stopped them because you have to have moderation uh, in, I think, in, uh, in state and local and federal government. You can't just go nuts uh, and jump off the cliff and say, we, you know, we hope we have a parachute on. So, so we sidetracked a lot of things. It's a little difficult for a newer leader to do that. I had 20 years of leadership to, you know, tap into uh, and campaigns uh, to do so. Speaker Houston's, you know, he's, he's got a tough job. 72 yeah. people. One thing that didn't get stopped was RIFRA, the, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Right. Um, 
that became a huge controversy. Mike Pence was governor. Um, he he pushed for this this legislation. He signed it into law um, in a in a private ceremony with a photograph that became uh, internet right. sensation. Right. With <laughs> um, why you got to take me back to Vietnam, Shelby? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just I mean, free, walk me through that a little bit because first of all, I think you were one of the people trying to convince him uh, to pass cleanup legislation. Yes. In fact, we passed cleanup. We didn't I, try to. Oh, we I know. Passed cleanup I know, legislation but, but that it was, I wrote. It was not an easy sell. No, it was not. Well, how did this get through in the first place? So, okay, I don't want to revisit all this because this is not necessarily my favorite memory of my 34 years, although it was very exciting to be on network news every morning. Um, so, RIFRA didn't do what people said it did. And in fact, it was generated by 18 law professors, including from Notre Dame and IU and McKinney, that that were on the liberal end of spectrum and were pro-same-sex marriage that said, we need to change this statute so that we know what the case law is for this because Indiana case law is unclear. So he passed the statute. And I don't remember all the legal nuances, but they had it all reasoned out. So it was really under my radar screen. I did not see it as a huge deal. Um, turns out, we find out after the fact that the national advocacy groups were very closely monitoring which state was going to pass this first. And that's what where they were going to launch. And I think it was North Carolina and Indiana and one other state all had bills that were just real close there was some procedural hang up in North Carolina and it got held up for three or four days. And in the meantime, our bill passed had North Carolina not had their procedural issue. All that would have happened down in North Carolina. And we would all said, okay, maybe we should take a breath before we go, go further. But we were able to, I mean, working with well, the advocacy the, the fact groups, that, the fact that we were hosting a final four yeah. and, and the NCAA was expressing concern, uh, helped with the, the national yep. profile on that. Well, we had a, we had a lot of, uh, our corporate, CEO community came together and assisted David Long and myself in putting something together that uh, cleaned it up and allowed local communities. The ultimate result was local communities can op, uh, adopt a human rights ordinance if they choose to do so, and uh, which has the same effect as as the original statute did. So, was Mike Pence difficult to deal with on that issue? Um. Yes, yeah, but you know, Mike, Mike actually was more difficult to deal with on taxes uh, than this uh, because he had. I mean, we, I, uh, and my team stopped him from doing what we thought was a very inadvisable tax cut that uh, was the same thing that Kansas was doing. Is it Brown? Sam Brownback. Brownback. Yeah, mm-hmm. they both had the exact same plan. Ironically, they both had the same campaign team too. Um, so we stopped it. They they served in Congress together, didn't they? Yeah, he was yeah. a senator. Yeah. Brownback was a senator. So we we did not, we gave Mike some of what he wanted, not all. Kansas came back the next year and had two years later and had to adopt massive tax increases to fund schools and other things because of uh, the unforeseen circumstances that we were afraid were going to happen to tax collections. So I told you I got out some of my head to search for some of my propaganda. Oh, I didn't copy that one off i actually had a tax cut timeline which you remember i would stick in everybody's face right. about every 15 minutes so let me ask you so you know but just nice job ahead. changing the subject but go ahead Robert. <laughs> that's what we that's what we do here 15 tax cuts in 14 years i'll just get that part in so jim can re- relive it speaker bosma we're sitting here with jim shella obviously the covered you for years and years decades what was it like to be interviewed by jim or when you saw him coming and him and Mr. Hester, you're like, was it something you looked forward to? And just about the entire State House press corps, how did you feel they did their jobs and did you enjoy it? I once heard Jim say the most dangerous place in the State House is between Brian Bosman and a TV camera. <laughs> Literally. Um, so we always had, you know, we had good banter and not just Jim. There were a number that, of people. You're, over not, there. you're not the only one that's been said. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> that's the first time I'd heard it said about me by you. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's there's some esprit de corps there. There was. Now I will tell you that as senior folks who had been around for a while and had, they could tell if Evan By was you know telling a fib or if uh, if 
Mike Pence or Eric Holcomb were exaggerating something that had happened previously. They knew because they had been there. That's a lot of young people, many of them in college uh, from Franklin, uh, Franklin University mm-hmm. or Franklin College, I guess. And, um, and it's a class. So there, there isn't the same coverage that there used to be. Uh, but we always enjoyed each other. We had a lot of fun at each other's expense. Um, and it, it, was, it was good. I want to ask about one more issue, uh, because you, you were there during um, the advent of legalized gambling in Indiana, yes. which has taken on a number of forms. And, and I know that one of your goals uh, was always to, to keep casino gambling out of Indianapolis. Yeah, um, I pretty much, well, there was a plan to have a casino hooked up by a tunnel to the state house. I just thought that was just a really good idea. You're kidding me. No. I'd never heard that. Yeah. And uh, well, so it would be in Claypool Court. Or Claypool something. Court. Yeah. So there's a, there's a tunnel straight over there. Um, yeah. So uh, Mayor uh, Peterson. Peterson. Yeah. Bart had announced, unbeknownst to any of the legislative leaders, that we were going to build a new stadium that was going to be funded with a new casino in Indianapolis. And I pretty much so said publicly over my dead body. Um, and as I said, the speaker can't always make things happen, but the speaker can stop definitely stop things from happening. And I think it would be a terrible addition to uh, to Indianapolis and, and you know, what was being built then uh, by not just Republican, but Democrat mayors also. So, you know... I, I just didn't think it was a good economic idea. I didn't think it was the model we should be based on. We're amateur sports here in Indianapolis, and having the betting portion of that come online, I just I didn't think it was healthy. Now, I'm, I'm no longer king for a day, so somebody else may make a different decision on that, but when it was a chance for my decision, I, I thought it was a bad idea. Well, yeah, now we have sports betting, yeah. which you can do on your phone. There's yep. there's a sports book in Lucas Oil Stadium. There's um, uh, so it's a different day. The gambling's everywhere. Yeah, are you still opposed to a casino in Indianapolis? Oh, I suppose my opinion doesn't really matter anymore. But uh, you know, we're, we're probably saturated. Okay, so I, I think if you put one in Indianapolis, you cause the other satellites to close or suffer. Um, and you know it's a major employer in Indiana now, whether you like it particularly or not. And as you said, if you didn't have, uh, it, you couldn't stop it from being here because it's on everybody's phone now. Uh, so I see when I'm watching a ball game every 15 minutes, um, and I, I just I don't think it's the healthiest thing in the world. But again, that's just my personal opinion. I'm not. I don't think it's horribly immoral or anything like that. I think people can ruin their lives with it, but people can ruin their lives with lots of different things. So. Has that been the biggest change in your time in the General Assembly? You were elected uh, basically one month before I graduated from high school. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah, there was no gambling in Indiana. There was a constitutional prohibition. So I, in, it was 88 that I think uh, the constitutional amendment passed. And, um, and it's been an ons- just for the just for the lottery, we were told. And then the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And as I was giving uh, my, oh, my parting words to the new leaders. I said, just remember, no matter what they tell you in the gaming industry, this is the last thing we're going to come here for. Don't believe it because they'll be back next year for the next big thing. And it's, it's part of our economy now. President George H.W. Bush famously stood up in the White House when he was president and was talking about some issue that was before Congress. And he said, you guys will probably remember this, he, he, he declared himself one lonely guy. They got all these people and lobbyists and all these people fighting for it, and I'm just one lonely guy who's against it. Is that how you felt sometimes that, you know, you're like, hey, I'm I'm the speaker and you're going to respect my opinion and my priority on these things. And if you don't, you're not going to enjoy life very much. Well, I didn't take that type of approach. I, I'm, I tried to be more subtle than this uh, to try to get people to see a different side, perhaps. Uh, of it. And you were saying caucus, we spent a lot of time in caucus. And a lot of that was me talking uh, or and others about different issues. And we tried to hash them out. And, and there are, you know, reasonable minds can differ on the vast majority of these issues that the state house is dealing with. The speaker has an outsized megaphone and has some procedural opportunities to see to it that some things don't happen. I was never a fan and I'll probably get 
you know, push back on this from somebody listening to your podcast. I was never a fan. I've never been a fan of constitutional carry. Um, and I, I carry, I've got a permit. I got a lifetime permit. And I think for law enforcement, they sincerely believe right or wrong that it takes a tool away from them if they cannot immediately determine if someone is legally bearing arms. Uh, so I sidetracked that, even though a majority of our caucus supported it. And because of NRA support, ultimately for the issue, everybody would have voted for it, you know, on the Republican side, which is what happened now. But I, I pocketed that because I didn't think it was good for the state. And there's some other issues like that as well. But I didn't flaunt it. I didn't tell people, if you do this, you're in trouble. Um, I mean, they may have made that assumption. Mm-hmm. I did have to I did have to make some um Early on in my leadership, I had to make some committee changes uh, for people who would not support the team, and I uh, didn't think they should be in key spots. And you do that a couple of times, and people kind of get the message that maybe I better try to be part of the team, whether it's the political team or the policy team, and not just be a pain. There's a lot of really strong younger leaders on both parties, but specifically, I want to mention my friend uh, Senator Kyle Walker, but a lot of Absolutely. others. Now, what's it like to be? You know, you you came into politics when when the, the Borst Mutts, you know mm-hmm. that that sort of uh, group of people, Richard Guthrie, who served obviously right. before, and now the younger generations coming behind you. How do you feel about that, and kind of how Indiana fosters and builds its leaders of both parties? Yeah, I I think uh, first of all, there's some satisfaction in that uh, to uh, to know that good people are stepping into these roles. As I said earlier, one of my biggest concerns was that. A lot of the good things that we'd been able to accomplish together would be unwound uh, if you know a strong person wasn't in the in the speakership role, uh, and and that's why I kind of held on for a little while to be sure I had someone there. It wasn't just a random pick, mm-hmm. uh, and so so yeah, I feel good. Kyle's great. There are a lot of great young leaders. Um, now they call me every once in a while. They call me for money, but they also call me to ask, uh, you know, how did you handle this, and would you have any advice? Kyle's done it. Uh, Representative Jeter that is in the, the District 88 seat has done it. Uh, the speaker does it every once in a while. There's even a couple of senators that secretly call me <laughs> and say, gee whiz, this is a mess. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Our guest today is former Indiana Speaker of the House, longest serving Speaker of the House in Hoosier history, Brian Bosma. Speaker, are you ready? Sure. What was your first job? Okay, when you grow up in a family business like a dairy, you work early. Eight years old, I was bagging ice at the Bosma Dairy, and by 10, washing dishes at the Bosma Dairy Bar, ultimately uh, working in the drive-thru, which was the first drive-thru milk and grocery uh, station in the state. And I have an article uh that my dad was featured in that, that says that cash and carry grandpa used to walk behind a milk truck. What was your first concert? Oh boy. The one I remember distinctly coming back from, this is not going to be my first one, but this is a memorable one. Um, I was, I was dating more than one girl at the time and I had a sweetheart at Purdue and I still had a, semi-sweetheart back here uh, in Indy. Came back, picked up my Indy date. We went to the state fairgrounds and watched Bachman Turner Overdrive. Car overheated, taking her back home. I opened the radiator and burned badly my right arm, having to go to the emergency room. So showing up the next day at Purdue with all bandaged up, arm was a very difficult explanation for Cheryl Hollingsworth, now Cheryl Bosma, <laughs> which she brings up every once in a rare while. We should have her on the podcast. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, but we should do one on the, Jim, we should do one on the press corps, on the press. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, we should do that on the. That, that would be a good one. Press club. Question number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Hmm. Um, boy, I, I know exactly what it is, and, and but it's escaping me at the moment. Uh, 20, 21 rules 
for leaders. I'm going to have to come back to you on that one. Our crack research staff, in other words, Chris Spangle, is looking it up as we speak. It's written by a pastor, um, John Maxwell, who I've eaten dinner with. And I used to be able to crack this off right away because I would get asked this, and I would actually use it a lot in speeches. But it's like 21 laws for, for leaders. Irrefutable laws for leaders. And I would always say um, you can't get beyond the page, the dedication page, because he says, I dedicate this to leaders because everything rises and falls on leadership. And I very much adamantly believe that is correct, uh, whether it's the most at our un- law most firm underrated or aspect of success. Absolutely. Yeah. Leadership is, is key. It's key in government. It's key in business. Uh, you have to have effective leaders for organizations to succeed. Question number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Well, I'm going to have to pick two. Uh, signing the Declaration of Independence would be my non-religious historical uh, one. Given the as we are um, the day that we are taping this, Sitting in a room and watching a rabbi wash the feet of 12 men, including one that was about to betray him, and he knew it. That would be the event I would want to witness. I think it's the the two that you chose are by far the two most popular. Last one, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours completely off the record, whom would you choose? Oh, boy. Um, Not not Norm Cox. (laughs) (laughs) That was just what I was going to say. Wow. Shella chose Norm. That's why he's proprietary. That's a very tough one. Um, It would have to be someone in... uh, in government, probably. Man, I'm I'm drawing a blank. Well, Barack Obama is the number one choice. Yeah, that George, probably wouldn't be mine. George W. Bush is Actually, probably George W. Bush probably my choice right there. Uh, th- that would that would be it. So as we end the podcast, which has been a delight, as and I there would probably would. be bourbon there. He may not drink it. He may not drink, but it. I'm sure he has some. Here's what we're going to do for once in your life on the record to be broadcast through the internets. You get to ask Jim Shella a question. Give it to him. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Why don't you prepare people for this kind of thing? So, uh, Jim, uh, how did you get your overly sarcastic wit? Oh, I think it's, it's inherited. It's inherited. I think uh, my grandmother Sanderson would be a good place to look for uh, for a source for that. Um, yeah, it uh, it's a coping mechanism. Scintillating answer. Thanks. Your your legacy is still developing. <laughs> Listen, it's I've learned from from getting uh, long and helpful answers from politicians that, that that maybe that's not what you should be doing. So, you know. So I just want to add one more item. Um, so you were asking about. Jim asking a question, this kind of thing. Most of those happen in what we call a scrum. So on Thursday, the speaker steps off. This is my habit anyway. Thursday at the end of session, speaker steps off the rostrum into this little diaz area. And there's 50 cameras shoved in the speaker's face and all these microphones. People are running up because they were hanging out outside. And I have a number of pictures of those and they're kind of my favorites. I sort of relished in that kind of thing and usually could poke fun and, you know, make some points. Um, and the staff would always have, you know, here's your, here's your point you're going to make. And I'd say, yeah, thanks for that. And I'd set it over here and then just, it was just conversation. So yeah, it, it was, that's back to the press corps issue. I consider it a real privilege to get to know people that were part of the state house. Um, and I would say, I always give thanks on to folks at the end of the 
session and you know call them in whether it was legislative assistants or the doorkeepers or whoever it was and i always took time to thank the media because there is they, they were there as long as the legislators were which sometimes is one o'clock in the morning uh, they're just trying to get the message out maybe not the message that the the political folks would like to have out but they're trying to do their best to let the public know and it's really it's really really a key element of our democracy to have open media let people make up their own decision about about that time, one in the morning, if a session had just ended, that's when we were doing whiskey shots in the Channel 8 office. <laughs> had a few of those in the governor's <laughs> office, too. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been former Indiana Speaker of the House, Brian Bosma. Our co-host has been Jim Shella, as always. Thank you both very much. Thank you, Speaker, for coming on. Thanks, Robert. Really enjoyed it. Jim, great to see you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.